You are listening to National Security Law Today. Welcome to National Security Law Today, the podcast of the American Bar Association Standing Committee on Law and National Security. I'm Nicole, a member of the committee staff. This week's episode was recorded live at the 29th Annual Review of the Field of National Security Law Conference in November. These are the keynote remarks from the conference dinner, 5G and National Security, delivered by Craig Silliman, the Executive Vice President and Chief Administrative Legal and Public Policy Officer of Verizon. To hear his full remarks, including his Q&A with Joel Brenner, who's a senior research fellow at the Massachusetts Institute of Technology, you can visit us online at AmericanBar.org slash NatSecurity, or check the notes to this podcast, where we'll link his full remarks. Craig Silliman, please welcome him. Great. Thanks. Thanks very much, Joel. That, that was great. That's the first time I think I've ever been introduced going back to my, my swimming career. So thank you for that. Um, it's great to be here tonight. And so what I'm going to do is I'm going to frame an issue for us. And then Joel is going to uh, troll me um, or, or ask questions. He may start trolling me even, even while I'm setting it up. Uh, but let me... Uh, you know, start by saying that I think about this issue from a couple of contexts. As Joe mentioned, I'm, I'm the general counsel of Verizon. I, so I have responsibility for uh, legal, regulatory, public policy, uh, for our physical security, our cybersecurity, but also our global supply chain, sourcing, and real estate. And so um, I want to talk tonight about an issue that really I think about from my supply chain hat, cybersecurity hat, my legal and public policy hat. And that has to do with China and 5G. And I want to start here. You know, we're in Washington. We're in the National Security Committee here. And we all know the general narrative about China. We know that the FBI has over 1,000 ongoing investigations into uh, China cyber attacks, uh, primarily focused on stealing US IP. We know the tools uh, in the toolbox. We know about CFIUS. We know about OFAC rules. We know about FIRMA. We know about export control rules. Um, and we know about Huawei, right? Huawei has been in the news quite a lot over the last couple of years. And the general narrative about Huawei goes something like this. Huawei was founded by a gentleman named Ren Zhongfei, who was an officer in the People's Liberation Army in China. Therefore, Huawei has close relationships with the Chinese government, and the Chinese government, therefore, could lean on Huawei to put back doors in routers and other telecom equipment uh, because Huawei is one of the largest providers, manufacturers of telecom equipment in the world, and that creates a cybersecurity risk. And that's all true um, so far as it goes. But I actually want to frame the issue for you in a slightly different way tonight in a way that I think is more mundane, but also more concerning. And I want to tell you a story about how 10 years from now, every bit of communications traffic on the planet could travel over Chinese equipment. And I would suggest to you, if that world were to manifest itself, the concern about back doors begins to look a little bit quaint, because that is a level of geopolitical power and power projection and technological hegemony that constitutes a severe national security crisis for this country. And the day it happens is about five to seven years too late to do anything about it. So I'm gonna frame this, um, do something a little unconventional and show you slides 
um, over dinner, and not just any slides, I'm going to show you charts. Um, because we're all used to talking about national security laws in this room, but I'm going to introduce you uh, to this topic through the lens of economic policy and the types of things that we look at in corporations. Because I think to understand where we are today, you have to understand where we've come from. And then at the end of that, I want to talk about a few takeaways, and then Joel and I are going to have a little conversation about it. Okay? So let's start by just talking about the network supply chain. I just want to ground us here. What this chart is basically showing is what a telecom uh, network looks like. Starting from the right, you have the device going into the device connects over airwaves to an antenna which is connected to a base station, which goes back into backhaul networks, and that's where the traffic tra travels through the network. We could have a conversation about supply chain in many different ways, but I'm going to focus tonight on what's called the radio access network, the RAN, which is the antennas that hang on poles to which all wireless communications uh, attaches. This larger ecosystem and beyond, however, I do want to emphasize that China sees this and acts, China Inc., really as a vertically integrated operation from rare earths all the way up through semiconductor chips to manufactured equipment to the carriers. In China, the government dictates how much and from whom the carriers buy and makes management decisions at levels that we couldn't contemplate. For example, most recently in 2015, the Chinese government moved the Chinese telecom minister over to become the chair of China Mobile, and it swapped the chair of China Unicom with the chair of China Telecom. This is the equivalent of the White House suddenly deciding that Ajit Pai, the chairman of the FCC, is going to be the new CEO of T-Mobile, and that Randall Stevenson, the CEO of AT&T, and Hans Vestberg, the CEO of Verizon, are going to swap jobs starting Monday. There's that level of kind of vertical integration in the way the Chinese government runs the entire technology ecosystem. We're going to talk today about RAN. We could be having this conversation about semiconductor chips, about AI, about clean energy, a lot of other things. So let's talk about how we got here. We talk about technologies in the communication space in five generations, from 2G up to 5G. There was a 1G. Uh, but 2G uh, was starting in the early 90s. We're rolling out 5G now. We can first look at the Chinese market. When the 2G networks were built out in China, 100% of the equipment was from non-Chinese manufacturers, Nokia, Ericsson, Alcatel, Lucent, a few others. When 3G rolled out, the Chinese government used that as an opportunity to do technology transfer. The Chinese government mandated that the Chinese carriers would buy two-thirds of their supply from JVs. So all of those non-Chinese manufacturers I just mentioned, Ericsson, Nokia, and whatnot, set up JVs in China, transferred their technology to the JV partners, and that's who they bought from. As you move to 4G, what you see is they've slowly squeezed out the non-Chinese suppliers. The red is the Chinese manufacturers, and that's Huawei and ZTE. The gray is gradually being squeezed out. This is a very deliberate process, and it's important here because as we move into 5G, China alone will represent 30% of the total global market for 5G antennas. If you are the largest provider in China, you by definition already have economies of scale in this market. So that's where we've come in China, 30% of the total global market. So what's happening outside of China over those years? 
First, to frame this, the total global market on an annual basis for buying radio access network equipment is only $76 billion. China, the Chinese government has set aside a $100 billion vendor financing fund to help carriers around the world buy Huawei equipment for no cash down. Africa is largely gone to the Chinese. Latin America is largely gone to the Chinese. The Middle East is largely gone to the Chinese because this is a deal too good to turn down. If someone walks in and says, we will build out your next generation network for no cash down, that's exactly what you're going to do. As a side anecdote, um, at the risk of sounding like a Tom Friedman column, as I was coming in the cab on the way into town today, the driver started chatting with me, asked me where I worked. And I told him Verizon, and he asked me a few questions about, about Verizon and Telecom. Then he said, do you think what the Chinese are doing in, in Africa is a threat to U.S. national security? Because you know every African carrier is building out with Chinese equipment. And I don't think people in the United States know what's going on. I was flabbergasted. I thought this was a plant. Um, this was amazing. A, a, a gentleman from Ethiopia. Um, and I think he's exactly right. So that's what's happening, vendor financing all around the world. So what does this lead to? From 2000 to 2018, over the last 18 years, Huawei has gone from $2 billion in annual revenues to over $100 billion in annual revenues. Meanwhile, this is what's happened in the market for supply for radio access network equipment. We've gone from 14 vendors in 2G to seven vendors in 5G. And I'm doing this to be precise, but it's actually not fully accurate. There aren't actually seven providers, there are five, because Fujitsu and NEC are simply JVs with Nokia and Ericsson to enter the Japanese market. In fact, there are only five manufacturers of radio access network equipment in the world. Two are Chinese, Huawei and ZTE. Three are non-Chinese, Ericsson out of Sweden, Nokia out of Finland, and Samsung out of Korea. If you look at the same time period, this shows market share. You look at Huawei is the thick red line. It's gone from zero to now being the largest supplier in the world. The orange lines and the green lines, what I've done is aggregated actually all the companies that Nokia and Ericsson have consolidated out of bankruptcy, companies like Lucent and Alcatel and Nortel into their aggregated market shares. You look back in 2000, they had almost 100% of the market between those, all the non-Chinese companies. They're now down 20 to 23% between the two of them. If you look at that chart, you have two companies that are increasing market share, the two Chinese companies. Everyone else is in decline. <clears throat> this chart's a little bit busy, but what it is showing is the thin solid lines are showing the percentage of patents in this relevant technology that have been acquired by these companies. And so if you look at the line that starts on the bottom that's red, at the lower left, that's Huawei. They had no patents throughout the 90s. You see them climbing up until they've tipped over 30%. They came down a little bit in 2018, but they have seen that climb. You see Ericsson and Nokia in decline. The way I would summarize this chart is market share equals revenue. Revenue equals research and development funding. Research and development funding equals patents and patents equals owning the future. What this tells you is the Chinese are positioning themselves to own the future in this technology family. Final chart. What I've done here is grouped in the left the countries that have banned or highly restricted Huawei. On the right are the countries that are largely gone to the Chinese manufacturers. 
The numbers here are capital expenditures by all the carriers in those countries. Now, capital expenditures, that's the total <clears throat> spending on equipment by these telecom companies. That's, not, that's different than just the spending on the antennas, but this is the only publicly available figure. So it serves as a proxy for the total amount of spend, which means the total addressable market for these companies. What this chart tells you is the following. Okay, I'm gonna stitch together a few dots that I've laid out. This is only a $76 billion global market. To just be in the game, you have to spend about $4 billion in research and development every year. So if you're Ericsson and you have a third of the global market, you have about $22 billion of revenues, and you can sustain $4 billion in R&D. If your market share gets cut, if your total market is cut in half, and it's only $30 million, and you have 30% of that market, you have $10 billion of revenues, and you cannot spend $4 billion of an R&D, which means you're starting into a death spiral. What this chart says is, in order for the non-Chinese suppliers to survive, in a world where the Chinese manufacturers are being subsidized by the Chinese government to price below their cost, they have to have a large enough total addressable market to make enough revenues to be able to fund their R&D. And whether or not they will be able to do that depends on the, company, the countries in the middle and what they decide to do from a matter of policy. Because the US and Japan and Australia do not constitute large enough markets to keep the non-Chinese RAND suppliers alive. I want to give you six takeaways. First, and by the way, a caveat, Ericsson and Nokia and Samsung are tremendous partners of ours. They're tremendous companies. They are tremendously innovative, and they're strong. I don't want anyone to take away any disparaging comments about them. But if you play out those charts on market share that I showed you, it is entirely foreseeable that within the next decade, the Chinese could run a simple predatory pricing strategy that puts the non-Chinese providers out of business. Point one. Point two, takeaway two. We may or may not care that 100% of the iPhones on the planet are manufactured in China. We may or may not care that no one makes television sets in the West anymore. I would suggest to you that if 100% of the telecommunications equipment in the world is made in China, that's a national security issue. And we need to think about it that way. Takeaway three, one of the things we're learning is that the tools in our national security legal toolbox are largely negative tools, by which I mean they're designed well for blocking. OFAC sanctions, export controls, CFIUS. We know how to stop things from happening, but what China is doing is industrial policy to actually invest in innovation and technology for the future. It's an affirmative national security policy, which is not something we have traditionally done, or at least we haven't done in about the last half century in this country. Much of the pure research, if you go back half a century or more, was done by groups like Bell Labs, Xerox Park, and whatnot. There's a lot of great things about a competitive telecom market, including the fact that you pay about 1% for your services of what you would have 80 years ago. But that also means when you don't have a monopoly environment, you don't have entities funding pure research. And government hasn't really stepped up into that space in the United States. The Chinese government certainly has. Takeaway four. U.S. can't do this alone. We have to have alliances. 
the way this has played out so far in the discussion with Huawei, and with all due respect to the diplomats and the U.S. government on this, the narrative has generally been Huawei is a security threat. We may or may not have evidence of that, but we can't show it to you, our allies. And that has led to a fairly um, skeptical, if not hostile, reaction by European allies in joining together in this effort. And diplomacy has not necessarily been the long suit of this effort in this administration for the last couple of years. I was trying to say that as diplomatically as possible. Alliances are vital. The U.S. government policy is not going to be enough to support this through a single market. Takeaway five, there's a lot of discussion in this town right now that the solution to this problem is a U.S. champion. I disagree. Um, first, replacing a U.S. company with a Swedish company or a Finnish company does not actually change the fundamental situation that I've just laid out here. And I would argue that it actually could make it worse for two reasons. First of all, I just said we need alliances. One of the strongest arguments for European alliances is that this is government policy meant to protect two major European manufacturers. If one of those becomes a U.S. champion, I think you lose some of the persuasiveness on the international stage. The second reason is these companies are struggling, which means they're making very low margins or negative margins. If you are a U.S. champion asked to go buy one of these companies and it's going to dilute your profitability, the first thing you're going to do is look to cut cost. And the last thing we need to do if you buy my narrative is have these companies cutting cost, which is going to come out of research and development funding right now. That's the scenario. There is a, I'm, I'm going to get slightly even more wonky on you for just a second. The takeaway six is the answer is, and the fundamental goal of government policy in this area should be, in my opinion, ensuring diversity of non-Chinese supply in the technology stack. I'm talking about the RAND market here, but we could have the same discussion about semiconductor chips and many other sectors that are going to be vulnerable here. We have to have diversity of non-Chinese supply because the worst thing that could happen to the Western world is to be in a position in the next 10 years when the Chinese government could do to the U.S. economy what the U.S. government has just done to Huawei and ZTE in the last two years. And that is an entirely possible scenario if we don't think about this holistically and strategically. We need to be doing innovation about in bringing up software and hardware in these markets. We need to be thinking about stabilizing the incumbents, but looking at where innovation goes, which moves us uncomfortably into a discussion about industrial policy in this country. But I would humbly submit to you that industrial policy in this country in the next two decades will be essential to protecting national security. With that, Mr. Brenner. Thank you for listening to National Security Law Today, the podcast of the ABA Standing Committee on Law and National Security. Remember to check us out at AmericanBar.org slash NatSecurity or look in the notes to the podcast for the full audio of Craig Silliman's remarks. You can learn more about the Standing Committee on Law and National Security there. Drop us a note at nationalsecurity at AmericanBar.org or follow us on Twitter at ABA NatSec. Thank you for listening. We'll see you next time. The views expressed on national security law today have not been approved by the House of Delegates or the Board of Governors of the American Bar Association and accordingly should not be construed as representing ABA policy.